Welcome to Boundaries of Expression and the third episode in our series on the right to protest. I'm Joe Glanville. Today, we're talking about monarchy and the limits on our ability to speak out. In the UK, we have the freedom to criticise public figures, and that includes the monarchy. But after the death of Queen Elizabeth II last year, there were a number of alarming arrests, including a man who called out, Who elected him? during the reading of a proclamation announcing King Charles III as the monarch. Another man was threatened with arrest just for holding up a blank piece of paper and proposing to write, Not my king. This kind of response from the police, at a time when the future of the monarchy should be under discussion, is chilling for freedom of expression. And our right to protest is being further significantly undermined in the public order bill going through Parliament. But in Saudi Arabia, an absolute monarchy, questioning the status quo can result in imprisonment and even death. The journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a brave and outspoken critic of the monarchy, was horrifically murdered in 2018 at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. So we're going to take a look at dissent and the monarchy in two extremes, a democracy with a constitutional monarchy and an absolute monarchy where there is no respect for civil liberties. Let's start with the UK. Laura Clancy is lecturer in media at Lancaster University and author of Running the Family Firm, a book about the British monarchy. I asked her first about the arrests of protesters. For me, as someone who studies monarchy and studies media, what's interesting about it is the timing of it. So this moment, I think, of the Queen's death, of Charles coming in, was always going to be a really key pinch point, I think for the monarchy. And when I'm speaking about the monarchy, I guess we also need to think about that contextually. So when we think about the monarchy, we think about national identity, we think about national belonging, we think about the state, we think about all of these systems and ideologies and institutions that are all caught up within, I mean, I guess some people might call it the establishment. So kind of a threat to the monarchy, I think, is a threat The more, it's more than just a threat to the Windsors, right? It's a threat to the state and to the establishment. So I think there's partly that going on, I think, in that symbolically protest against the monarchy is protest against something much bigger. Because I think in order for the monarchy to go, there would have to be much bigger social changes that would affect probably government, the House of Lords, maybe even the police. Like it, it will be part of kind of bigger protests for social justice, I think. So I, I think that's maybe, you know, if we think about monarchy more broadly, that it wasn't just one man shouting one thing to Prince Andrew. It, it was representing something much bigger and, and more symbolic. And perhaps that's why such small acts of protest were seen to be much bigger, in, in their minds at least. But at the same time, we do live in a country that has a very long tradition of political dissent, where the institutions of the country are supposedly robust enough either to withstand the dissent or to be able to engage in a discussion around where there needs to be social or political change. So it seems interesting that in the case of the monarchy, it's almost as if it needs special protection or extra protection. But I think that's what's so shocking about it, really. Because I think one way, you know, one way you rule by consent is to kind of allow those discussions to happen. Because you you kind of allow, you know, you see it all the time in newspapers that, that and then someone will come back and say, oh, no, well, they bring this much money into the country. Like, in a way, be having those arguments allows people to, to rebut those arguments. So in a way, I think that's why it's so surprising. They 
try to stop it in that way because it's almost the opposite of consent and it's the opposite of kind of allowing those discussions to happen in order to then rebut them. I mean, I think it also says something perhaps around, you know, you said there these institutions are, are stable, but maybe it says something about how perhaps they're not in, in, in the same way as they perhaps have been. The timing of the Queen's death, I think, was fascinating in terms that we're already at a really difficult moment, I think, for the monarchy. I mean, you've got Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, Prince Andrew, various calls for reparations from around the world, various countries leaving and, and, and getting rid of the monarch. Perhaps maybe, you know, the treatment of these protesters reflects the fact that they feel that it's not that stable anymore. And maybe they need to do a little bit more to keep people in line. Do you think this is a moment then where we should be questioning the role of the monarchy? Oh, definitely. I think if not now, then when? And what kind of questions do you think we should be asking? I think, I mean, even on the basic terms, which is what, you know, one of these protesters shouted, who elected him? I think that's a really basic question of, you know, we, we say we live in a democracy. And I mean, we could think about lots of ways that that's not, maybe not true in quite the same way anymore, actually, never mind just the monarchy. You know, to have this unelected figure is a, it's a total antithesis of a democracy. And I think there's also questions about inequality, wealth, money, you know, the money they take, the money that they own, the money that they hoard, the money that they've got from colonial pillages hundreds of years ago that they still own, the amount of land that they own, you know, at a time where we're meant to be thinking about social justice. To me, you can't have social justice unless you get rid of the monarchy. So, you know, getting rid of the monarchy is, is a feminist protest. It's an anti-racist protest. It's all of these things because they're so caught up in all of those systems. There's a representational factor in that they represent colonial power, white supremacy, patriarchy. But there's also more material effects in terms of what they own and the land that they own and the space they take up and how they facilitate certain systems of inequality, I think, in this country. And going back to the question of protest, the protests were actually very minimal compared with what appeared to be an expression of national grief or that was how the media portrayed it. But certainly the queue to see the Queen lying in state became a national event that was ultimately described in religious terms. It was described as a pilgrimage. Do you think those two very extreme examples of of the protest versus this kind of national act of homage, do you think that kind of encapsulates these very different attitudes towards the monarchy in the UK? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think the, the queue was fascinating for lots of reasons. The media, particularly the BBC, who were tiresome that week of the Queen's death, they portrayed one particular narrative, right, of, of everybody's going there and they're all sobbing on the streets and they're all wanting to pay their respects to the Queen. And actually, there was a report and there was actual research that spoke to people that said actually a lot of people were there because it was a massive national moment and they wanted to be a part of it. It wasn't anything to do with the Queen, actually. Or, you know, they, they kind of were walking past and saw it and, want, and wanted to be involved. So there were lots of different reasons why people were there, I think. And it wasn't just necessarily because they all loved the monarchy and loved the Queen. But that's a very useful narrative for them to peddle that kind of the whole country was out and was really upset about this moment because it makes it important. Right, by narrating as important, you're making it important and you're setting the tone and you're setting the tone for everyone all around the world of how this moment was being responded to. I also think that's partly why these arrests were, why they were trying to justify them. 
one of the protesters said, who elected him? And he said the people around him were saying, you're being really disrespectful. You know, this is about the Queen. And he said, well, actually, I was quiet when we were when they were doing the, the bit about the Queen and a bit about grief. And I said this during the proclamation of Charles. And I think that's that's also interesting. And I think that's where it'll become interesting at the coronation, because then that's not about the Queen. It's not about grief. It's not about, you know, we, we can't dismiss that people might have had personal feelings about this woman and, and people grieve in different ways and all of this. But it's not the coronation isn't about that, right? That's a complete shift. That's about power and that's about inheritance. And I think that's the difference. So that that'd be quite interesting, I think, to see how that plays out. Because I think a lot of the justification for arresting people at that moment was because people were saying it was disrespectful of the Queen. And you don't have that anymore now. So the funeral, and I'm sure that the coronation as well, will will be the same as an exceptional display of pageantry and of power. What kind of role do you think? that plays in UK culture and I'm wondering again if part of the unease with people who are unhappy with the protests is a sense that royal ceremonies should not be treated in that kind of way. I think so I mean one thing I think will keep coming up over the next few months before the coronation is about the money so what it's costing so that those reports very recently actually that said Charles didn't want a cheap coronation that he wanted to go for the full thing and I think how that plays out, you know, in a cost of living crisis, the NHS is collapsing, etc. You know, how that will play out, I think, will be really interesting and it might hopefully get people to have a more critical discussion. I think there's also the fact that I think a lot of this kind of pomp and pageantry, people get a lot from it and seem to enjoy it. And I think that when a lot of people outside of Britain think of Britain, they think of that. <laughs> they think of our kind of our ceremonies and how traditional they are and all the costumes and people go and look at the the guard in the bearskin caps at Buckingham Palace. So I think that kind of plays part of how this country is narrated to ourselves and to others. So I think on the one hand there's the question of, of money and the fact that it is, you know, to look at it's obviously very old fashioned. And that's problematic in lots of ways and lots of people see that. But on the other hand, you've got those people who love it, right? And will get completely involved in the for the Jubilee, they'll put balloons up and they'll have parties and all of this. So I think there's again, there's two sides and two very opposing sides to that that play out very differently. And I'm not sure yet which one of those will take the four and how that might play out. So even though it's old fashioned as you said, somehow these displays of pageantry still remain core to a sense of national identity? I think so. I think, and I mean, even, this is very reductive, but even the fact that we make them bank holidays, you know, it says something about how national feeling, it structures national feeling, and that's so important for the monarchy. And we saw that with the Queen's death, how, you know, cancelling all all of the TV shows and the BBC, it, it, it creates this sense of national feeling, it forces a sense of national feeling. Or at least it suggests that you should be thinking in this way. And I think the cer- the ceremony is a, a part of that. And I think they are so much part of kind of Britain's story, I think, in a way that we seem to want to embody and want to take on. And again, when you kind of look at polls like YouGov and things, you know, they say one of the things we're most proud of is, is the monarchy and kind of the ceremonies and how that plays out. And it's what we're famous for. You know, there's, there's always reports around the world that say, you know, the British are known for their kind of massive displays in ways that others, other monarchies aren't necessarily. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of sense of fairy tale almost attached to that as well. And that's caused a caught up in our heritage and our history and, and how our history is narrated. You know, when you go, when at school, I remember learning about the Tudors 
right in Henry VIII and his wives like how that kind of history is is narrated I think is interesting so I think it, it all plays into this much bigger picture and a much bigger feeling that that stops us saying well hang on isn't this costing millions of pounds <laughs> rather that you know we're talking about how spectacular it is or how much it look makes us look on the world stage and we know kind of post-Brexit how the government is very keen to <laughs> re-establish themselves on the world stage. So how this could perhaps be part of that as well, maybe. It's very interesting as, as you describe that there's a sense in, in which the royal family reflect our story, the way they project themselves, the way the media projects them is all apparently part of our story and our history. What do you imagine would happen if that was then taken away if there was an end to monarchy as you're calling for? I mean, I think there are other ways to establish that. You know, countries who don't have monarchies doesn't mean they don't have bank holidays. <laughs> doesn't mean they don't have these moments. It's just very different. It looks very different. But that's, in my opinion, that would be a good thing because it wouldn't be celebrating this one particular family or this one particular, you know, very rich institution. It might be celebrating a public figure or it might be about a charity. You know, there could be there's different ways of doing that. So I think, I, I think, you know, I'm not getting rid of monarchy would be a massive 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 change it really would it would change so much and like even when like boil it down to we'd have to change our money we'd have to change the post boxes like ridiculous things it would it would impact on everything but to me i think you know if we want to fight for social justice if we want to be anti-racist if we want to be feminist if we want to be anti-colonialist then get we can't do that without getting rid of the monarchy Lina al-Hathloul is from a family that has paid a high price for speaking out in Saudi Arabia. Her sister Lujain al-Hathloul is a leading women's rights activist who campaigned against the ban on women drivers. She was arrested in 2018 and released in 2021 under strict conditions. Our reporter Nicola Kelly spoke to Lina, head of monitoring and communication at Al-Kist, which defends and promotes human rights in Saudi Arabia. She's under a travel ban. Uh, she's not allowed to commit the crimes she has been accused of, which basically is um, her activism. So she's not allowed to be an activist anymore. She's not allowed to talk to journalists. She's not allowed to be public about her opinions, basically. Um, what's important to note is that my sister, Lujain, was sentenced um, in the terrorism court, which means that she's considered as a terrorist now, although she's released, which you can imagine is very isolating in, uh, in, in a society like the Saudi one. Um, you know, people are fear to be seen um, around people who have been sentenced. Uh, it's very difficult for most of the people who have been released to find a job. It's a shame sometimes to the family. So even your own family rejects you. Of course, we're we're, we're different. I think you know we've been very supportive of uh, Lujain's uh, fight. We we are proud of her uh, for everything she's done. But um, it of course it impacts us uh, as well. I mean, I, I for example personally, I mean, I just had a normal life. I had finished my my law studies. Um, I was working, and um, you know, I had to stop everything and focus on on fighting for her release. And now it's a full time job that I do, working for Al Qist for Human Rights, which is a, a Saudi NGO working on uh, prisoners of conscience in Saudi. 
You said that Lee Jane isn't free to speak. What would happen if she did speak out? Um, I think that, you know, now in Saudi Arabia, everything leads you to to jail and to forced disappearances. Uh, so if Lee Jane dares to speak out or to, to express her opinion on on any social matter, she would directly be arrested. And now what? Um, it's either because if she does it on social media, then they will use the cybercrime law to prosecute her. Um, and if she does it publicly, um, physically, they would use the, either the anti-terrorism law because any kind of criticism or any kind of comment on, on the official decisions is considered as destabilizing the country or not respecting the the, the people's morals. Uh, basically, they use any broad crimes they, they have uh, to prosecute uh, freedom of expression. So she would, um, I think Lujan maybe wouldn't be forcibly disappeared because she's too much of a high profile, but she would uh, be uh, arrested and probably sentenced again. Your sister Alia has said that Saud al-Qatani, a prominent former member of the Saudi royal court, visited Lujain while she was in prison, beat her and threatened to rape and kill her, among other horrendous threats. What response did your family get with regards to those allegations? And how are the monarchy, broadly speaking, how are they held accountable, if at all? It is funny, sadly funny, the um, the reaction they have or uh, their, their response, because when Lujain uh, first complained about the torture, the the court said that uh, cameras in, in Saudi prisons don't um, save footage for more than 40 days, which of course is a lie. Uh, we, we all know how things work in Saudi Arabia. Everything is connected. They have you know footage of everything. And then uh, they basically said the other excuse was saying that Lujain only complained uh, almost a year after uh, the, 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 the torture. And she said, yes, but I was imprisoned. How, how was I supposed to complain about torture when, you know, I was not even allowed to have anyone uh, visit me? So this is how they, were, they have been handling the case, just denying it and saying that Lujain couldn't provide any evidence of it. Um, so, of course, it's uh, frustrating, it's disappointing, it um, makes us mad, angry, sad, but we were not stopping. I mean, just for example, um, we as a family started a trial in Belgium for crimes against humanity. So we're trying to seek justice any way possible, but it, unfortunately, it won't be possible now in Saudi Arabia to have justice or any kind of accountability. Human Rights Watch and others have said that Lou Jane's arrest was an attempt to essentially frighten anybody who was sceptical about the Crown Prince's human rights agenda. How is the monarchy in Saudi protected from criticism or from anybody speaking out against them? So basically what happened is uh, since Mohammed bin Salman came to power, uh, he created the state security uh, which is basically an agency that he controls uh, every aspect of and is uh, doesn't respect any kind of uh, law or rules in, in Saudi Arabia. So they're basically MBS's private police. And since they exist, no, no one can do anything. No one can comment anything. No, I mean, just for example, the la- uh, last maybe shocking situation we have is Selma Shihab. 
after the James uh, release, uh, some people either applauded uh, that she was released or, you know, uh, mentioned that they were happy about it. And some of them got arrested for that. But Selma Shihab um, was um, a student at Leeds University and uh, she went to Saudi Arabia for vacation. And the Saudi system managed to find her Twitter account uh, and arrested her and sentenced her to 34 years in prison. And the charges actually mentioned the fact that she retweeted me in a tweet, uh, a tweet in which I mentioned uh, that Rujain should be freed. So just, you know, in Saudi Arabia, we've never had any kind of uh, freedom of expression or, you know, uh, we don't have uh, these basic rights. So Twitter was basically the, the parliament of the people. But now even on Twitter, uh, people can get uh, arrested for, for tweets. So um, this is the situation now. Uh, no one can speak. Any kind of comment can be seen as criticism. MBS, basically, because he came to power after a coup, uh, he imprisoned uh, the, the, the parts of the royal family that did not accept him uh, being crown prince. He doesn't have legitimacy. So everything is considered as a, a threat uh, any not applauding him enough or not applauding uh, the, the new decisions can lead you to jail. Um, so this, yeah, there he has absolute power. Uh, there are no counter powers. Uh, there are no checks and balances. It's total chaos now in Saudi Arabia. I mean, even at least before MBS, what we would have at the judiciary, it wasn't independent, but at least we had the names of judges, for example, on court documents. Now, even that, sometimes they had the names of, of judges because the judges don't want to be known or to be to be threatened because of the, the, the harsh sentences they give to activists. You mentioned reform earlier. Do you think while Saudi is ruled by MBS, an absolute monarch, do you think reform or civil liberties will ever come to Saudi? I mean, we, us as Saudis, we have to, to stay positive and that's what we're fighting for. Otherwise, we would have given up a long time ago if we didn't believe that change is possible. It's all about pressure again. Um, MBS has no legitimacy. Uh, the people did not choose him. And even within the royal family, there is a big part of the royal family that doesn't want him to be uh, the, the next ruler, to be uh, king, because he's still crown prince. So a change is possible. As long as MBS you know, feels threatened, he will have to give concessions. Uh, what we are doing, for example, there is, you know, the diaspora has gathered and they've created the first political party which aims at, you know, paving the way to, you know, some kind of democracy or democratic institutions in the country. For example, what they do, it's called the NAS party. Uh, they they meet with um, officials abroad, with um, with the government, government officials, with parliament, members of parliament. And what they do is basically to, to try and be a counter power. So, of course, things uh, start from abroad for now, because in Saudi Arabia, everything is closed and everything is monitored, everything is surveilled, uh, that it's not possible to do anything from inside now. But we, we believe that, you know, with pressure, with these initiatives such as NAS, um, 
with uh, trials, with you know seeking accountability and justice for the crimes, uh, we can bring change. I think. Uh, I mean, no, no, no absolute monarch lasted forever. I mean, uh, we, we, we have to to also learn from history. And do you think on that, do you think the international community can do more? Can they apply more pressure? I know that Lee Jane's case has been raised by MEPs in Brussels, by presidents and prime ministers around the world. But do you think that they, that, you know, inter- the international community can be doing more to apply pressure? Of course they can do more. But what I, can, uh, what I should say is that they should be do- doing more, not only for Saudi civil society or for the people, you know, the who are... Uh, oppressed in Saudi Arabia. I think that the international community should be doing more because what they're actually doing by staying silent um, to such violations is that they're feeding a monster that they, they're not, they won't be able to, to stop in a couple of years. And this is the example I always give. If the international community had said something 10 years ago about, about Putin, it wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't be as strong as he is now. Um, but we always wait for the last minute when things uh, cannot be undone, that we say, oh, okay, now it's too, it's too big to be broken, it's too big to, to, to fail, to fall. So yes, the international community has to do something, not only for v- values or, you know, uh, international um international law or uh, you know their their morals they have to be doing something because it will fire back on them the fact that they're not doing anything against such a dictator uh, Mohammed bin Salman is, ga- is gaining power on so many levels not only uh, on a diplomatic one I mean just the fact that for example and sorry if it's a bit out of context but just the fact that no one does anything about him buying uh, sports clubs football clubs, for example, in, in England, and that in a couple of years, he will be leading everything in England. You cannot, you know, it's not only about um, about the money, it's about power, actually. He will be, he will have so much influence in the UK that they, it cannot, it won't be, they won't be able to undo, undo that. Um, so it will fire back on them on different levels. So yes, the international community can do something and should something. You and your family have paid an enormous price for speaking out against MBS and his right-hand men. What has given your family the courage to protest and what do you hope to achieve going forward? I think mainly Lujain is the reason why we were that strong. You know, even when Lujain was in prison, she was actually the one uh, giving us strength and not the, the other way around. Uh, she was the one believing that she, uh, things will change, that we should, you know, continue to 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 talk and to 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 be public about what is happening. Um, of course, it's you know, again, um, I might make it seem like it's very easy or that you know we are very privileged to the point that you know we we haven't maybe been touched really, but on a daily basis, I, I call them just to make sure that they haven't been t- been arrested, for example. On a daily basis, I make sure that they're, they're fine. And, you know, the fact that, because the travel ban is not only on Lujain, actually, it's the, the, it's on my whole family. So I, can't, I haven't seen my family for five years and they cannot leave. And it's almost like it's the Saudi government telling them, look, at any any time we can arrest you and um, and imprison you and uh, sentence you on on fake charges. 
So it's very difficult. Uh, but what we're hoping to achieve is is a country in which we can live without fear. I think that you know, Lujain has given us this this strength. We have to fight for her, for for the country. And again, I always look at history, and I think that our voices matter. And you know, sometimes just one person can can bring change. You've been listening to Boundaries of Expression from Article 19, produced and presented by Joe Glanville and Nicola Kelly, recorded and mixed at Bison Studios in London. Listen out for our next podcast in the series on the right to protest. If you'd like to find out more about Article 19's work defending freedom of expression, please visit article19.org and read the latest report on the right to protest. (laughs) 